Exodus. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Exodus chapter 20 is where we'll be again. Uh, or if you have a f- smartphone, you can open that up to Exodus 20, or the scripture will be on the screen here as well. Well, all of life is full of tension points where there are competing desires that pull us in multiple directions. Currently, in our culture, there is a major tension point, I think, around romantic relationships. And we as a church are not immune to this tension point. This tension comes from the way in which we think as a culture that a soulmate-type relationship is out there for us, and we are just waiting on it a sort of transcendent love which comes with commitment, fidelity, satisfaction, and solves all of my problems. Now, we may not say that, but if you listen to our music or watch our TV shows, that is totally what we believe. But at the very same time, we are drawn internally and urged by our culture towards immediate gratification. If we want it, First, we should get it for sure. And second, no matter what it is, and second, we should get it now. Again, we don't say this, but think, just think about what it is when you do a, uh, go to search for something on your phone and your internet is just a little bit slow. And you're like, dang it, this is so stupid. And you're like, okay, wait a second. At your fingertips is all of the information collected in the world, and it's going to space and coming back down to your phone, and you've got to wait more than two seconds, and you're angry about it, right? Like we are drawn towards and urged by our culture towards immediate gratification. Now, here's the thing. The, the first uh, part of this tension point, right? That's, that's not exactly how relationships work, which we'll get into, But also, even if it did, that kind of a relationship would take a lifetime to build. But the second thing is that we want that immediate now. We want it now. And there's this tension. So we try to have both. And it's why we have so many broken relationships, declining marriage rates, addictions to pornography, emotional and physical affairs, and many more issues. So we seem stuck with the idea that we actually just have to have it, uh, we, we have to have it this way. And we seem stuck, like, I don't know how to get out of this tension. So why would there be any incentive to remain faithful in the place that God has called me? If this is just how it is, why should I remain faithful in the place that God has called me, whether married or single? And this is where I believe the law of God is helpful for us. And it comes in to reflect the goodness, faithfulness, and gracious character of God, instructing us to remain faithful. But why? The question I have for us this morning that I want us to consider is, why should I be faithful? This morning we're continuing in our sermon series on the book of Exodus, and we've been focusing in on the Ten Commandments. And really doing a deep dive on each commandment. And so this week we are continuing that. And we are on the seventh commandment this morning. 
from Exodus chapter 20, verses, verse 14, just one verse. You must not commit adultery. All right, let's pray. All done, right? <laughs> Seems so clear and simple, right? It's just like, boom, done. The, the question for us is, what is God commanding in this? And then why should we pursue this, right? Because the reality is we are faced with this tension that I talked about. Between this desire for uh, sort of a, a end-all, be-all, solve-all-my-problems relationship and immediate gratification. And that leads to a tension in which faithfulness isn't really a part of the equation. Well, what is God commanding in this? In order to understand the why, we've got to understand the what first. What is he commanding? Well, uh, immediately some of you are like, all right, well, I'm not married, so this sermon does not apply to me. Uh, or if you are married, you're like, well, I've never cheated on my spouse, so this doesn't apply to me. All right, so uh, we're done, right? Or some of you may be like, well, I really wish so-and-so was here to hear this. Like, oh, this person really needs to hear this. Well, God's law is much broader as we've been learning, right? As we learned last week, God's law is much broader and covers far more aspects of our life. So I promise this will apply to you. This commandment covers all unclean things in thought, word, and deed. As Jesus describes it in Matthew five twenty-seven to 30, he says, you have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery. But I say, now remember, we talked about this last week. When Jesus says, you have heard this, but I say, he's not saying, hey, I'm giving you something new. He's saying in in, uh, in spite of what you've heard from the elders and the way that they've interpreted the law, I'm giving you the true understanding of the law. This is how the law was always meant to be understood and how God intended it, right? He's not adding to the law or taking away from the law. He's rightly expounding it. But I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if your eye, even your good eye, causes you to lust, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for the whole, your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand, even your stronger hand, causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. All right. Well, that got more intense. For us to understand this, we need to back up just a little bit. For us to understand God's law and God's commandment against adultery, we need to understand just a little bit about what God, what the Bible says about human sexuality. Now, this is not a sermon on human sexuality in its entirety, right? So we're not going to answer every question, not going to go through the whole thing, right? But we need to give a little bit of an overview of this in order to deal with adultery. We need to summarize some of the biblical material. So first of all, all people are created in the image of God, right? We talked about this last week. It's foundational to uh, the commandment not to murder. It's also foundational to the commandment uh, to not commit adultery. All people are created in the image of God. Now, all people are also broken by sin in every part of them. 
Meaning we are spiritually broken. Our relationship with God is broken. We are intellectually broken. We think wrong thoughts about the world. We have wrong worldviews. We have wrong uh, thoughts about how things work. We are broken emotionally. We have disordered desires and emotions, all of those things. And we are also all broken sexually. Now that includes all people. Now it manifests itself differently in every person, but it's not like there is a certain subset of folks that are inherently sinful and these folks are inherently holy. Nope, everyone made in God's image is both made in the image of God and broken and sinful sexually. The Bible also teaches that sex is reserved for marriage. A marriage relationship we've seen, we see throughout the scriptures is reserved for a committed covenantal marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Now, the Bible certainly describes other situations, but just because the Bible describes a situation does not mean it is promoting a situation, right? We need to understand that the Bible is largely narrative, meaning it is telling things as it is. And it's the story of a sinful people. So there's going to be stories where it's like, yeah, that's not okay. Now, it might not say in that individual story, yeah, that wasn't okay. But the whole of the scripture would say, yeah, that's not okay, right? But it's accurately describing the way in which things were. So it's not always prescriptive, but descriptive. So if sex is created by God for marriage, and marriage is between one man and one woman, for life. Therefore, anything outside of that in thought, word, or deed breaks this commandment. Anything outside of that in thought, word, or deed breaks this commandment. Now, not again, not a sermon fully about human sexuality, but we but I certainly am willing to talk through that if you have questions. Obviously, this is a huge uh, controversial point in the church today and in our culture is understanding human sexuality. One of the things that we have said over and over again as a church, right, is we want to be submitted to the text, right? And so if you uh, were listening last week uh, or if you were here last week, including just the <laughs> just two, two of you and me, <laughs> but if you were listening last week and you were like, amen, yes, the church needs to hear this. And then this week you're like, how dare you? Well, then the question is, like, what's your motivation for that? And are you going to submit yourself to scripture? We need to be consistent and admit that we might need to be challenged in certain ways. Like if we agree with everything all the time, we're probably inventing some sort of God. Because he's supreme and sovereign, meaning we will probably disagree with him at points, but we are wrong, not him. And we need to be challenged. Now, now here's the other thing. I could be wrong. We as a church could be wrong in our understanding. Like, we totally could be wrong. Church history is full of examples in which the way, uh, in, of ways in which the Bible was misused and wrongly interpreted. But here's the thing. If that's the case, you've got to show me from the text that we're wrong. Because we have... Uh, a basic understanding that God has spoken and has revealed himself. And so we've got to wrestle with the actual text of Scripture. Got to wrestle with the actual whole story of Scripture and the biblical understanding of things in order to walk through this. 
All right, so that's the basic overview. It's not everything that you would want me to say, and uh, I probably said too much for some of you, right? Like, but that's okay, because I'm up here, not you. <laughs> uh, no, but I want to actually engage in more conversation, right? Every once in a while, when I go away from any talking points in notes, it's like, yeah, don't do that. Uh, <laughs> uh, but the reality is, like, I want to engage in real conversation over this. So if you're like, hey, I have questions about that. I have questions about how our culture understands these things or what the Bible teaches about these things. Please talk to me. I would love to sit down and wrestle through the scriptures with you and talk about those things. But what we need to do is see kind of a big picture of that so that we can dive into the commandment together. So why should I be faithful? All right, two points this morning. Why should I be faithful? One, the importance of marriage, and two, the impermanence of marriage. Like a good Presbyterian, we got two IM words there. Importance and impermanence of marriage. First, the importance of marriage. Now, to say that marriage is important is not to say that marriage is the most important thing right? To to affirm it as important is not to say that is the most important thing or more important than singleness. That's not what I'm saying by saying marriage is important. Certainly, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 to 35, he says this, I want you to be free from the concerns of this life. An unmarried man can spend his time doing the the Lord's work and thinking how to please him. But a married man has to think about his earthly responsibilities and how to please his wife. His interests are divided. In the same way, whoops, uh, in the same way, a woman who is no longer married or has never been married can be devoted to the Lord and holy in body and in spirit. But a married woman has to think about her earthly responsibilities and how to please her husband. I'm saying this for your benefit, not to place restrictions on you. I want you to do whatever will help you serve the Lord best with as few distractions as possible. Now, clearly, In the midst of this, Paul is saying that marriage is important and he's recognizing the importance of it. And yet at the same time, he is actually urging the church to consider for their uh, devotion to the Lord remaining single. Now, certainly throughout church history, the pendulum swings in multiple directions away from or towards certain things. And it has swung many times in different ways, right? And so certainly there was a swing towards, uh, in the uh, early church, away from marriage, right? And so you get through uh, the Roman Catholic tradition, uh, the uh, singleness of the priest and the requirement to celibacy. And then at the same time, you do get a swing back the other direction sometimes. And so in some Protestant circles uh, in which we find ourselves, there's such an emphasis on marriage that it's like part of a job description for a pastor. Like, now it might not be written, but it might be in conversations. And I know because I've heard those conversations, right? But the reality is if we uh, write a job description for a pastor that excludes Paul, and Jesus, we've probably done something wrong, right? So like there is these swings, right? So we need to understand that in the midst of this commandment, we're talking about faithfulness to God in your calling 
whether that's to singleness or to married life. Paul wouldn't say these things if marriage wasn't important. He actually says that it will make your devotion to the Lord harder. We actually usually say the opposite, don't we? We actually often say the opposite to single folks. It's like, well, when you get married, life will be a lot easier and you'll be able to follow Jesus better. Paul's like, actually, the opposite, right? Paul's like, you're going to be divided and I want you to be singularly devoted to the Lord, right? We have it backwards sometimes where we see unmarried folks either on the verge of disaster stumbling into sin or causing others to stumble into sin. That's not a fair reading of the New Testament and certainly not of what Paul's saying here. Paul's like, hey, this will make ministry and devotion to the Lord harder because it brings responsibility. So in order for us to understand that, we need to repent of our idolatry to marriage and the nuclear family as the church and grow in understanding how single folks fit into the life of the church and bless the family of God. We have to do a far better job of that. And that really does play into this commandment on faithfulness. And also, we need to recognize that the tension we were talking about early on Uh, in the midst of that tension that we feel, marriage really is an important thing. There is an importance placed in the scriptures on physical intimacy within marriage, sex within marriage, and its connection to marriage. That's something that our culture massively downplays. The very real, powerful effects on relationships and life, right? At this At two points, we say different things. We say we want soulmate-like relationships, and we also say, well, sex is just sex. It's not a big deal. Those two things can't be true at the same time. They cannot be true at the same time. And yet we believe that is the case. And yet also, if you talk to people, the pain of betrayal shows exactly the opposite. This is actually a very incredibly powerful force upon relationships. Also, marriage is important because it is the way by which God has designed the world to produce more image bearers of God. The connection between uh, physical intimacy in marriage, sex within marriage, and bearing children is really important. The Lord brought those two things together for a reason, right? He brought those two things together for a reason. Now, throughout church history, again, there has been emphasis, uh, there's been seasons in which there's an emphasis on that to the exclusion of any other purpose that God has created physical intimacy for marriage with. But certainly now we're at a point where we have so uh, drawn those two things apart that we need to remember that those two things are to be brought together, which is why God has reserved this for within the context of a committed covenantal relationship. So this is, uh, marriage is an important thing. Now, because marriage is an important thing, Jesus talks about the connection between lust and adultery. Whether married or unmarried, adultery in thought is a very real thing. And according to Jesus, we're all guilty. So we can't say like, okay, this commandment doesn't apply to me. Because what Jesus says is, you're all guilty. All guilty. 
Not just when it involves other people, but when it involves ourselves, our computers, our phones, or just our imaginations. There is an importance that Jesus is hitting on of purity in thought, word, and deed. Now, saying the word purity, some of you are like, ooh, I don't like that word. When I talk about purity, and when the Bible speaks of purity, we're not speaking of a a sort of uh, pervasive thing within the church called purity culture, which basically can be summarized. If you do this, you are good. Or if you don't do this, you are good. And if you do that, you are bad. End of story. It also seeks to place the responsibility for other people's sins on you particularly on women and their bodies. But Jesus puts this on the person, directly on the person lusting, not on the other person, right? Right? Jesus puts the responsibility on the person who is lusting, not on everyone else who it might be the object of their lust, right? Objectifying people breaks both you and them. And so we have to make sure that we're not, what I'm not talking about is this hyper intense, like, let's show you all the rules. And as long as you obey all the rules, you'll be good and pure and just remain that way. And we're not going to talk about any struggles. We're certainly not going to talk about any questions. We're certainly not going to talk about any ways in which you're like, hey, I'm having feelings that don't compute with what the Bible says about this thing. Like, Purity culture says don't talk about any of that stuff, just don't do it. Well, the problem with that is it just doesn't work, right? We've seen this throughout all the other commandments. That never works. It just never, ever works for us to like just stuff stuff and just not do it. We don't have the power to do that. We actually have to engage in honest conversation. We actually have to engage in honest repentance and in honest diagnosis of who we are. Also, this commandment covers lots of things. And as we've been talking about the Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, the exposition on this commandment says that it it includes in it uh, a prohibition against rape and by extension, all forms of sexual abuse and exploitation. That is sinful. And sinful not for the person who is victimized, but for the person who is perpetrating it. Right? David and Bathsheba, the story of David and Bathsheba has nothing to do with Bathsheba being a temptress, but everything to do with David abusing his power and exploiting her. That's a very real thing, and that's with the king of Israel. So that's pervasive throughout culture and history and the church. And we have to actually talk about that. Clergy abuse is real and needs to be talked about. So we have to actually engage in those conversations if we are to obey this law well. But it's not looking to a purity culture because remember the function of the law is to show us not a way in which you can obey directly and earn God's goodness or earn God's grace. But the function of the law is to show you that you are disobedient to God's law. That you are broken, sinful, and impure, all of us. And it should lead us 
back to Jesus. Repentance leading us to experiencing Jesus' presence, and then by the Holy Spirit conforming us to Christ and his purity, we grow in holiness. But that's a progressive growth in holiness that takes your whole life and you never arrive until glory. We don't view it that way for all of the commandments. And this is one that we don't often view it that way. But the reality is that Jesus sees this as a pretty big deal, right? He says, poke out your eye if it causes you to lust. Now, Jesus is not being literal here, right? He's not telling you to literally poke out your eye. But what he's saying is, this is a big deal. And in a culture that says, this isn't a big deal. Everyone does this. Don't worry about it. Satan is going to use that to whisper to us that same thing over and over again. It's not a big deal. It's really not a big deal. Why are you worried so much about it? If, if right, the way our culture says this is like, if you church folks would just stop worrying about it so much, everything would be fine. Well, culturally speaking, we haven't worried about it for too long. And I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, I don't think we're doing very fine. Actually, far worse when it comes to this, over and over again. Like, just like scandal after scandal breaking of abuse. And like, we are jacked up as a culture when it comes to this. We have not gotten it right. And just uh, avoiding sort of the religious dogma of things isn't going to fix it. But looking to Jesus will. Because here's the reality. If we don't pursue this, we know how this affects us, right? Does it leave us with satisfaction? Or does it leave us totally without satisfaction and just feeling more broken? Right? It's like being thirsty and then drinking salt water. It's what it's like when we are desirous of intimacy and then pursue it in the wrong way, in the way that God has not intended it for us. It's like being thirsty and then drinking salt water. We are thirstier and more broken. So because marriage is super important, because God has designed marriage to function in this way in the world, purity is important and we ought not to pursue, uh, or we ought to pursue faithfulness. But also, We ought to pursue faithfulness because marriage is impermanent. Now, impermanent, meaning it's not permanent, right? It is not permanent. Now, you may be thinking, that doesn't make a lot of sense. If it's not permanent, why be faithful? Like, shouldn't the permanence of marriage be the faithfulness thing, right? Like, you got that jacked up there, Josh. You didn't uh, study your English very well, which is probably true, but that's, that's a different story. But Why be faithful if marriage is not permanent? And wait, isn't marriage permanent? What do you mean by that? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22, that same day, Jesus was approached by some Sadducees, religious leaders who say there is no resurrection from the dead. 
They posed this question, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies without children, his brother should marry the widow and have a child who will carry on the brother's name. Now, in this culture, uh, bearing children was incredibly important, and so it was the duty of a family to pass on the family name and to bear children if uh, a, a brother died without bearing children, right? So that's no longer, right, this is a cultural way in which the people of God were uh, functioning, not the culture that we function in. Praise the Lord, right? Well, suppose there were seven brothers. The oldest one married and then died without children. So his brother married the widow. But the second brother also died, and the third brother married her. This continued with all seven of them. Last of all, the woman also died. So tell us, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? For all seven were married to her. Now, the point of this passage is not to talk about marriage, but marriage is part of the way in which they are seeking to trap Jesus. They're like, we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead. We don't think that this is something that, that the Bible teaches, and we're challenging Jesus on this, and we think we got him in a stuck situation, right? Like, how do you explain this, Jesus? All, all seven brothers were married to this woman. Whose husband? Who will be her husband in glory? The resurrection of the dead. Jesus replied, your mistake is that you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. In this respect, they will be like the angels in heaven. But now as to whether there will be a resurrection from the dead, haven't you read about this in the scriptures? Long after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had died, God said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So he is the God of the living, not, uh, not the dead. When the crowds heard him, they were astounded by his teaching. See, uh, the point of this passage is to say that the resurrection is real, right? The resurrection of the dead is real. And Jesus bases that off of the tense in the Old Testament passage, right? I am the God, not I was the God. That's the basis of his argument. So to say that Jesus doesn't take the law or the Old Testament seriously cannot be said because he's basing his argument off of the tense of the verb. I am the God of Jacob, right? But the point that I want to point to here is that Jesus says they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. You see, this is yet again where this sort of challenges our idolatry to the nuclear family and marriage within the American church, right? I mean, how many weddings have you been to where it's like the eternal, everlasting, glorious love of the husband and wife, right? Like, we talk like that, right? Don't we at weddings? Like, this will last forever, on and on in eternity. Now, I don't know what relationships will look like in detail in the new heavens, new earth, but I know Jesus says this, and I can't get past that, right? So there will not be marriage in the new heavens and new earth. Now, I do believe that there are uh, very real uh, long-lasting friendships and relationships and marriages, right, that are like the relationship that you will have if you're married with your spouse in glory, I do think will be distinctively different than just everyone else. But it won't include marriage, which means it won't include sex. It's really important. It's really important. Because in our culture, if we're to understand why we should remain faithful we need to counter the narrative that our culture says to us, which is, without this, you are not fully human. 
Without acting upon whatever urge or desire you have, no matter what it is, you're not fully human. You're denying what it means to be human. Jesus tells us the full expression of being made in the image of God and glorified does not include this. And Jesus himself, fully divine and fully man, did not experience it. That ought to fundamentally shape what we believe about marriage, what we believe about lust, what we believe about sexual sin, what we believe about pursuing faithfulness together. So if marriage is not permanent, but is important, why should we remain faithful? Because marriage actually points to something far bigger than marriage. In Isaiah 54, 5, it says, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. You see, marriage points to a relationship between God and his people. Throughout the scriptures, this metaphor is used of God being the husband to his people. God being close and intimate with his people. And that metaphor is extended into the New Testament in marriage between Christ and the church. As the scriptures say, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. Paul says this is a foundational text to understanding human sexuality and relationships and marriage. And he says it's really not even about that. It's about Jesus and his church. Now, We should learn a lot about marriage and all those things from this text, but its biggest point is that Jesus loves his bride. Its biggest point is that God wants to be close to his people. God wants to be near to his people. God desires relationship with us. So here's the thing about faithfulness that we need to recognize. The commandment not to commit adultery includes the the thought, word, and deed of uh, lust and adultery in physical relationships, and it also includes spiritual adultery against the Lord, faithfulness to God, and not pursuing idols. This reality is far more troubling, friends, than physical adultery. It is our spiritual adultery, preferring anything more than God. This commandment and its application throughout the scriptures, and in particular the prophets, showcases this consistently. Jeremiah 3 9. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. You see, the, the prophets consistently point to Israel's idolatry as adultery against the Lord. This is very, very important. The reason I think these things are connected is because there's something so powerful about physical intimacy and something so powerful about worship. The love, affection, passion, and intensity. In fact, it could be why God created us with such powerful experiences to signify the powerful, albeit different, 
relationship and kind of love that he has for us and that we are to reflect with him. You see, these two things are connected in God's word for a reason. Because God is trying to to display to us that he loves us passionately and desires us to be faithful to him. And in light of our faithfulness to him in the greater reality, not not the temporary reality of marriage, but the permanent reality of Christ and his church, if we are faithful in that, then we can be faithful in our relationships. So not only are we unfaithful in thought, word, and deed when it comes to the literal and physical, but also when it comes to the idolatry that is signified. Not just guilty of unfaithfulness in human relationships, but we're guilty of unfaithfulness in our relationship with God. Unfaithfulness in marriage relationship is one of the places that Jesus uh, says is a just reason for divorce. In the scriptures, it's a profound, painful breaking. But here's the problem. What if we're all unfaithful to God? If marriage, if if Jesus says like uh, uh, in a situation of unfaithfulness, that's a just reason for divorce. We should all be like, "Uh uh-oh. If God describes our relationship with him, as a marriage, and we have all pursued something more than him, we've been guilty of spiritual adultery. Like, is there a just reason for divorce here? And is the Lord going to leave us? Second Timothy 3, 11 through 13 says this, you know how much persecution and suffering I have endured. You know all about how I was persecuted in Antioch. Uh... I got the wrong passage there. Hmm. That was the wrong passage. It's 1 Timothy. Uh, I'll just summarize it for you. 1 Timothy says, when we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. When we are unfaithful, he remains faithful. And the reality is, God already knew that. When he wrote this commandment, When he gave it to Israel, he already knew that. Remember, Israel is a people with a history. This is a covenant relationship. We talked about the Ten Commandments as a covenant document, right? A covenant relationship, a committed relationship of law and love. This is a renewal of a covenant that's already existed though, right? Because God had already made a covenant with Israel through Abraham. And if you remember, we learned about this, we've learned about this a couple of different times, but there's this incredible passage that is a little bit obscure that I love about this relationship that God has with his people. It's when God creates a covenant with Abraham. And in the ancient Near East, when you made a covenant, you would uh, have a ceremony in which you would split a bunch of animals in half uh, and lay them out. Thankfully, we don't do this as marriage covenant ceremonies now because that'd be really messy uh, and a little bit awkward. But so, so they would split these animals in half and then the two parties would walk through them signifying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, this is what happens to me. All right? Now, when God does this ceremony with Abraham, do you know who doesn't walk through the, the, the pieces cut in half? Abraham doesn't walk through. 
God walks through twice. He goes through twice as a smoking pot and a burning flame, right? He goes through twice. Abraham doesn't go through. What is the Lord communicating in this? I know you're going to be unfaithful, but where you're unfaithful, I will be faithful in your place. In your place, I'm going to be faithful. It's like being at a wedding in which one person takes both vows. That's our relationship with the Lord. He's saying, I will be faithful for you and I will be faithful to you. And I'll do so in the person of my son, Jesus. And so in the midst of recognizing your unfaithfulness to God, we want to recognize his faithfulness to us. One of my favorite books of the Old Testament is the book of Hosea, which describes this reality over and over again. And Hosea 2, 14 through 23 says this, but then I will win her back. This is the Lord speaking. I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. Now, the language of this, right, is very intimate. It should make us feel a little bit like, ooh, that, Lord, what are you talking about there? Because those intimate desires and feelings that we experience are meant to trigger passionate love for the Lord Jesus. Meant to trigger the thing that Jesus feels for us. We see his love as so distant, so impassionate. It is very real and near. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. Oh, Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows, so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever, showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine, and you will finally know me as the Lord. In that day, I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the sky as it pleads for clouds, and the sky will answer the earth with rain. Then the earth will answer the thirsty cries of the grain, the grapevines, and the olive trees, and they in turn will answer Jezreel, God plants. At that time, I will plant a crop of Israelites and raise them for myself. I will show love to those I called not loved, and to those I called not my people, I will say, now you are my people, and they will reply, you are our God. How is God going to do this? Through the gospel. You see, the reality is our culture is dying for some sort of apocalyptic, romantic love. And we're looking for it in the wrong place. The Lord Jesus Christ comes to win you to himself. To be faithful in your place, perfectly obeying the law for you. And then dying on a cross, taking your unfaithfulness 
in both human relationships and in your relationship with God, paying the punishment that we deserve for it, and then crediting you with his faithfulness so that you can be in this glorious relationship with the Lord. Jesus loves and saves in spite of our unfaithfulness. And so now, if you have been wooed to Jesus by his love, a love that you will find nowhere else, give yourself fully to that love. Why should you remain faithful? Because God remains faithful to you. How do you remain faithful? Give yourself fully to faithful, passionate love for Jesus. Be consumed by his love for you. Enjoy him. Be overwhelmed by how much he passionately loves you. And then be empowered by the Spirit to be faithful in the temporary situation we find ourselves in, either in singleness or in marriage. Being faithful, waiting on the new heavens, new earth, in which we will all together be the bride of Christ and near to our faithful husband. This is why we remain faithful, because Jesus is so much better, so much more passionately in love with us than anyone else, and can do far greater than we can ask or imagine. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now confessing, Lord, that we are unfaithful. We are often faithless. We are often running in the other direction. We are so easily distracted by so many things, and we love so many things more than you. So Jesus, forgive us. Thank you that you love us in spite of our unfaithfulness. You are passionately in love with us. Jesus, would you transform us by that love so that we would remain faithful in all that you call us to? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's um, stand and respond together through song.